Welcome to Pazina Perspectives, our podcast series at Pazina Investment Management. At Pazina, we are a global value manager known for our commitment and dedication to disciplined value investing throughout an investment cycle. Today, we are here to discuss, is value investing dead? If not, what is the catalyst for value investing to outperform? And when will this happen? This podcast goes along with our Q3 commentary. It is on our website, pazina.com. Now, let me introduce you to our guest. I'm here today with Ben Silver. He has been at Pazina Investment Management for 19 years, and he is a portfolio manager on our U.S. small, mid, and large cap strategies, in addition to our global strategies. I am also here with Caroline Kai. Caroline Kai is a member of our executive committee, and she is a portfolio manager on our global, international, European, and emerging market strategies. To start us off, over the last 12 months alone, value has underperformed growth by a record 44%. We are clearly in a period where growth has substantially outperformed value. Ben, I'd like to start off with you. Can you please uh, tell us how we got to this point? Let me take you back though a little bit more than, than 12 months. Uh, when, when you think about how value has been doing it, it had a very strong year in 2016 um, as the economy was, uh, was, was quite strong then and 17 as well. And then as we got into 2018, the economy started to slow down and there were a lot of fears that we were approaching the end of the cycle. You know, back, back then uh, on the US side, uh, there was talk and then actual implementation of, of tariffs uh, that was going to cause a slowdown. And investors have this reaction, this gut reaction, I would say, is as you get to the end of an economic cycle, uh, get out of value. And spreads started to widen um, back then. And this continued through to 2019. It, it was actually turning at the beginning of 20 as the economy was showing signs of some acceleration. And then we ran pretty much uh, headlong right into to COVID. And then this uh, deep recession uh, started. And, and I guess maybe it proved out the case of uh, investors saying that a recession was right around the corner, that this economic expansion had gone on long enough and uh, now we were in it. And what happened at that point were that spreads that were already wide uh, then blew out to levels we, we really haven't seen before, uh, almost, uh, uh, you know, certainly not in the recent history and even going back further than that. And so, you know, we get to this question of is value dead? And, you know, obviously value can't be dead. I mean, when you think about what value actually is, Value is just buying cheap present value of cash flows. That's what it is. And, that, and what we're trying to do in terms of building a deep value portfolio is buy a, a series of companies that'll give us over a cycle a larger amount of cash flows than the other stocks that we don't. So, so value in and of itself, you know, can't be dead. But the question comes in is stocks that your typical value or that we invested in, did those stocks underperform because they did not deliver the cash flows that were expected? 
or is there something else? Okay, that's interesting. I can accept that. But what then did you find is the cause for values underperformance? So in our core of the letter, what we did was we broke out the constituent parts of performance over the last few years to try to understand what happened. And if, if, you, if you look at it, we, what we can do is we can break those out into three different parts. We can look at the returns from dividends, um, the returns from EPS growth, and the returns from multiple expansion and see how that has done. Um, over the last few years. So that, that's what we in fact did. We did it in our quarterly letter and we looked at these different constituents of performance between the Russell 1000 value index and the Russell 1000 growth index from the beginning of 2017 uh, through the third quarter of this year. And what we found, uh, which is not surprising, is that value and the those those cash flows and those earnings are obviously not is not what's broken um and in fact where you're where you're seeing the vast majority of the performance on the growth side is actually from multiple expansion to a to a huge degree you know when you when you break out the parts the total outperformance of growth was around 117% versus value at um, close to 17%, so 100% more. And of that, um, 67%, uh, if not more than that, was from multiple expansion. So, so when we look at that, um, we say that, you know, this is not about what I would call even reality. This is about uh, sentiment and what people believe. And, and I get it. I understand what people are believing. We're in an environment that's incredibly unusual. Uh, in this environment, cyclical stocks have gone down uh, or real stocks and, and these digital technology stocks have gone uh, way up, but we've gotten to a degree where the difference in valuation is, it's just, it's hard to believe. It's, it's we're talking about growth at record levels of, you know, close to 60 times earnings uh, versus a historical of, of 30 to 40 and, and value at somewhere where it's always been at around eight to 10. So the, just the, the, the massive difference, mostly driven by multiple expansion uh, is, is where we are today. Thanks, Ben. Caroline, are you seeing uh, something similar outside of the United States? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, we're seeing very similar development um, in every region of the world. So when we examine the Japanese market um, specifically, the European market specifically, emerging market, um, as well as all developed world um, outside North America, we see pretty much similar developments. The numbers may, may diverge a little bit, but the underlying drivers are, are very similar. So if we look at the MSCI EFA index, which captures all non-developed markets, um, sorry, all developed markets outside of North America on a global basis, since the beginning of 2016, the MSCI EFA growth index has returned about 53%. 
whereas the EFA value index has been flat throughout this period. Um, and if you dive into the uh, constituents, as, uh, as Ben walked through earlier, um, dividend contributed about 15% for value and 12% for growth. So fairly similar. Um, and, and if you were to look at the earnings development over this period for value companies, it was down roughly 12%, um, really capturing the pain of the COVID induced recession from an endpoints end um, perspective. Um, but growth during this period in EFA was down 3% too. So yes, there are growth companies, but the recession impacted them negatively as well, although they were not down as much as the 12% that you would see um, was value stocks. On the other hand, if you were to look at the multiples that people are willing to pay for value companies in EFA versus growth companies, um, the value multiple contracted by about 3%, so effectively flat during this period, whereas growth expanded by 44% was the backdrop that earnings have actually declined modestly during this time period. Um, so, so you can see that almost the entirety of the performance difference is driven by changes in multiples um, as opposed to what's happening with earnings or dividend payout. Thanks, Caroline. So, Clearly, we've seen a tremendous multiple expansion in growth. Um, ben, can you help us understand whether this can possibly persist? What does history tell us about multiple expansion? Well, you know, what I would say is, is in the long term, I, I really highly doubt it. I mean, let me, let me throw the question back, back at you, Valerie. What if I asked you over the last hundred years, um, how much has multiple expansion actually contributed uh, to performance? What would you say that is? Okay, don't answer. I'll give you the, I'll give the answer. <laughs> uh, it's hardly anything. You know, when you, when you think about performance in the market, performance in the market comes from dividends and earnings growth. As you'd expect, multiples can expand, multiples can contract, and over a long period, uh, you shouldn't expect to really gain any performance um, from multiple expansion. So in fact, you know, the, the, uh, what we're trying to do is really focus on dividends and earnings um, and, and not multiple, because as I've said, over a very long you know, time, that's not where you get performance. Now, let's take a look back in history to what I think is a fairly similar time to today, which is the tech bubble and what happened there. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, from this point over the last uh, few years, growth has outperformed value. Um, basically the score is 117 to 17, if, if you will, uh, with, must, with the vast majority of that coming from multiple expansion. Uh, in the tech bubble, you know, from the period of, you know, 97 to the beginning of the year 2000, uh, you saw a similar thing where, where growth was massively outperforming value. And there was growth had performed at 165% return with 165% return, um, while value only saw uh, 70%. And there, 
uh, the, the multiple expansion on the growth side was around 81.5%. So still also uh, a majority of the performance was coming from multiple expansion. And we all know how that ended. The way it ended was that multiple expansion uh, completely went away. And over the ensuing time period, um, this was through a recession and a few years after, what we saw was that the multiple expansion contracted by 42% with the ensuing performance, as you'd expect uh, from a result like that. And through cycle, through that whole period of, you know, 96 through the beginning, uh, uh, through the end of 03, excuse me, uh, value outperformed pretty handily coming in at, you know, 96% performance versus 40, 48 for, uh, for growth. So when you're in an environment where the multiples are where they are and growth multiples are priced for beyond perfection and value is getting an actual giant discount because of that environment, that's just usually a great starting point uh, for value investing and uh, has really resulted from, from that, that point a pretty strong outperformance uh, going forward. Thanks, Ben. So it's been a growthy market driven by multiple expansion today. Caroline, what will be the catalyst for value to start outperforming? So Valerie, I think, you know, there are, there are four things that, that we would point to that have underpinned the multiple expansion of growth stocks um, over the last uh, really sort of decade or so. Um, now, some of them are coincident. So when you look at a turn in any of these drivers, my suspicion is probably a couple of them will turn at the same time. But coming back to these drivers, we're looking at, we think you know there's interest rate, um, there's the perception that sustainability of high growth is fundamentally different today versus history. Um, there's question mark around the adaptability of incumbent franchises or players um, in, in sectors or industries where you're seeing transitions and disruptions. And, and lastly, just recessions. Um, so, so let me take these drivers one by one. Um, if you look at interest rates, clearly declining rate favors long duration cash flow more than short duration cash flow. Because um, what you earn 10 years from now is worth more today if rates were, are lower. Um, so growth stocks whose cash flow by definition is further out in time and, and, and benefits more from declining rate will see multiple, more multiple expansion during this period um, versus value stocks where more of the cash flow is happening today. However, interest rates do not need to rise to bring the multiple expansion to an end. It just needs to stop falling. Um, so whatever has expanded reflects the fact that we're in a very low interest rate environment. To think multiple can expand further from here, you need to see interest rate decline by similar magnitude versus what we've experienced over the last five or 10 years. Um, and, and, and I think it's fair to say that's probably unlikely to happen. 
Um, so if you look at the second thing, then kind of the the invincibility of high growth businesses, you know, growth ex- expectations for for virtual businesses like the fan stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, um, and and so forth, have been quite have been sort of fundamentally influenced by what people experienced during COVID. Um, COVID has uniquely benefited virtual businesses as most activities in the physical world became restricted, be it work from home or e-commerce. And this translated into growth for those, those virtual businesses in a pandemic and the middle of a recession. So what more evidence do you need for people to say, wow, these are really fantastic, fantastic companies um, that, are, that are really invincible. However, um, if, you, if you think about COVID as something that really meant three to five years of behavioral change got compressed into a six months time period. And in some cases, market share going from 30% to 50% um, over a relatively short period of time, or in some cases, even 90% because every other alternative was shut down. Mathematically, it just would not be possible for that level of growth to sustain itself for an extended period of time uh, because you will simply run out of market share to take. Um, now, what you will hear in some cases is where investors believe these companies, um, because their management is great, their platform is exceptional, as evidenced by COVID, um, they will figure out the next territory to conquer for sure. Because when you look at what's embedded in the assumptions that are needed to justify the valuations today, one needs to believe that revenues will exceed what's visible today as addressable market. And the companies will go into areas that we don't know exactly what they are, but let's just believe they'll figure it out. Um, That is embedded in some of the growth multiples today beyond just a low interest rate. So, So any disappointment around those growth rates, around those expectations, can translate quite quickly into actually a turn in the uh, in the multiple um, in the other direction. Um, then the third thing, um, which sort of is the adaptability of the uh, incumbents, I almost think of it as kind of the other side of the coin um, of the invincibility of the um, of the new economy stocks. Because just as investors believe in the sort of all-conquering momentum of growth companies, the market is pricing in exactly the opposite for incumbents in many businesses. So conventional wisdom has it that technological change comes entirely at the detriment of the existing franchises. But that's likely to prove incorrect for many incumbents because they have grown into the position they have for very good reasons, scale, relationship, competitive cost positions. Certainly there will be franchises that fail to adapt, but there will be many that can adapt. And because they have the operational and balance sheet flexibility, and because they're run by management team that respond to changing environments, that they would more than likely to be successful during that transition, Um, And the last one, very straightforwardly, is just recession. Recession is in place, and and you've seen the the decline in value stock earnings 
um, that is more significant versus what you see with growth. However, what goes down does come back up. And as the economy moves into recovery, you would expect these earnings to recover. Um, and, and while the, the recovery has been very bumpy, um, the path towards economic recovery around the world is starting to become more clear, we think. And earnings at value companies should benefit more um, going forward um, as we get through the, uh, the recession. Um, so, so those are the four things that we think can turn um, and, um, and, and that could be what, what leads to a turn in the cycle. Thanks, Caroline. Let me sum it up for everyone. We see four possible catalysts that could lead to a shift from growth to value. One, interest rates stop falling, bringing multiple expansion for growth stocks to an end. Two, exuberant growth expectations, particularly for technology stocks, revert to normal. Three, a realization that many investors are overestimating the impact of disruption on incumbent businesses. And four, a recession. So turning back to Ben, I know it's an impossible question to answer, but when do you think we'll see the cycle turn? Uh, Valerie, that, that's obviously the uh, million, billion, maybe trillion dollar question that, that everybody's asking. One thing we wanted to take a look at is if you invest in a value portfolio uh, at the beginning of a recession, you know, how, how have you done versus history? And so that's what we did. We took a look at this uh, in the United States. We went back, uh, I guess we like that uh, 100 years, we like the century mark. Uh, so we went back 100 years and took a look at the 14 recessions and had you invested you know, at the beginning of the recession, how you would have done uh, in a value portfolio. And what we found is that you actually do quite well. On average, you'll outperform by around 400 basis points uh, in these uh, 14 uh, recessions. Um, yet you don't, you don't really meaningfully trail in, in hardly any of them. Now, the other thing we wanted to take a look at is if you bought that and then held it for five years, how, how would you have done? And you do even better. You know, you, you end up with 530 basis points of outperformance. And here's what I like to, st to stress. You would have outperformed in nine of the last nine. So uh, over that 100 years, you're 12 for 14, but you would have outperformed by, by nine of the last nine. Now, now, another question we get asked is, well, maybe this one's different. That's what, of course, you know, we're always asked is maybe this is different because we're in, we're in such a low interest rate environment. So we searched around the world and, and we wanted to find something that maybe will give us some insight into that. So, so Caroline, if you, if you walk around the world and you take a look, is there any geography that has exhibited that sort of behavior and how does value do in, in those recessions and afterwards? Yeah, Ben, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. So we, we undertook the same exercise outside the US. Now it's actually quite difficult to find synchronized recessions um, across different geographies. Um, so, so it's very hard to pin down kind of an a pan-European recession or a global recession or EFA recession for that matter. Um, 
and uh, and and also, you know, was emerging market. Obviously, we have the issue of data reliability and uh, and just lack of uh, of history. Um, so so Japan um, is the one market um, where we did have the longest and most reliable data set. Um, and I would say the results are, are even better than what we saw in the U.S. So so since 1975, over the last uh, 45 years of history, there has been um, actually eight recessions um, in Japan. And, and those in general last longer than what you see in the U.S. So, so the average recession is about 19 months in duration. Um, in Japan. Now, all of this probably reflects the fact that the Japanese economy has been mired in a low growth environment. So you never, your liftoff speed is, is low, is slow. Um, and, uh, and as a result, it's actually easier to slip back into negative growth or, or recession. Um, but if you were to look at the returns in the Japanese market during those periods, Value has outperformed in every single instance um, in the uh, in the sort of one and five in the five years subsequent period um, of uh, of a recession's onset, um, and the average outperformance um, is uh, is actually close to uh, a, th a thousand basis points, almost ten percent annualized um, over a five year period. Um, now the I think the conclusion is really interesting because Japanification is probably one of the words that you hear bandied about quite a bit um, and partially used to justify the ever rising multiples for growth stocks. Well, you know, because growth is, rates are low, growth expectation is low and whatever growth you can find surely should be valued um, at, a, at a high level. However, if you study the specific history of Japan, um, and, uh, and value during recessions and in the period following recessions have been quite strong. Um, now, part of the strength in the average does reflect the fact that Japan experienced the two exceptional asset bubbles during the time period studied. The value experience following the two asset bubbles in Japan, namely the real estate bubble in the mid 80s um, and the uh, TMT sort of technology bubble in the late 90s. Um, the outperformance subsequent to those periods were 19% and 22% respectively for value um, versus the general market. Um, and, and, and beyond the sort of the recessionary impact, we think this really speaks to the extreme pain, extreme pain, a high starting point evaluation may inflict on subsequent returns. Um, and if, but even if you exclude those two extreme events, the average excess return for value post-recession in Japan would still have come in at close to 6% annualized. Um, and that's certainly very comparable to what you have seen in the US over a very long period of time. Thanks, Caroline. Um, that's some very compelling data. Um, this has been really interesting. I just wanted to know if you have any final thoughts uh, for the audience. Well, you know, as Ben said earlier, there's really no way to know exactly when value will turn. Um, but given the dramatic, dramatic multiple expansion that we have seen with growth stocks and how value does through recessions, it does feel like the elements for a turn are all there. Again, you know, you, ne you can never pinpoint a time, 
But as we asked in our newsletter, if you don't invest in value now, when will you? Um, and I hope we have provided some data points and observations in the podcast today um, that really highlights the point that a lot of what's happening is not about business model being fundamentally disadvantaged. Um, and a lot of it is about multiple expansion that we've experienced over the last few years. Um, and, and history is, uh, you know, sort of uh, really says in general, when you start with extreme multiples, the probability of further performance is greatly diminished. I'll just leave it at that. Thank you, Caroline and Ben, for joining me today. And thank you, everyone, for listening in to the latest episode in our podcast series, Davina Perspectives. If you would like further information on this podcast, please check out our Q3 commentary titled Value, If Not Now, When, on our website, Pazina.com. 